Welcome, everyone. You are listening to Forged in Fire, where we explore how LGBTQ plus leaders develop their leadership superpowers. You'll hear from guests as they share how they navigated their journey through adverse and crucible experiences to develop into amazing leaders. Forged in Fire is hosted by Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram and Dr. Liz Cavallaro. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. I'm an astronautical engineer in the United States Space Force and one of the senior transgender officers in the military. I'm a passionate advocate for the value inclusion brings to organizations. And I'm Dr. Liz Cavallaro. I'm an adult development scholar and associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College. I'm also an experienced researcher, interviewer, leader development practitioner, and professional executive coach. Please join us as we discover the inspiring stories of how LGBTQ leaders are forged. Hello and welcome to another episode of Forged in Fire, the LGBTQ leadership podcast. I'm Bree Fram, uh, and I'm so happy to join you. Along with me, as always, is... Hi, all. I'm Liz Cavallaro. Happy to be here. And we are so thankful to be joined by Commander Blake Dreeman today. Uh, Blake is a Navy officer. He's a supply officer at Fleet Ready Center East at Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point. And though his, his current job is impressive, we're here to talk to him about his leadership development journey because Blake has quite a story and we're so excited to, to dive right into it. Uh, so Blake, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, happy to be here today. Glad to glad to be able to talk leadership. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here, Blake. It's a real pleasure to get to chat with you today. Um, so Blake, you know a little bit about the background of the, the work that we're doing and the interest that we have around how the development journey as a leader intersects with the LGBTQ journey and how those stories play out in a way that develops leadership skills, capacities, and other qualities that we know are so essential for today's leaders leading in today's complex context. And so I was hoping that you could start out by just giving us a little bit of the arc of that story um, that for you highlights how you developed into the leader you are today. So there are so there are several intersections across my leadership story. Um, if we go back to um, just starting with getting selected for submarines, right? Um, before um, 2011, women weren't allowed on submarines. And at that time, I identified as a cisgender female, uh, was selected for women in submarines, and it was pre-Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So when I was selected for submarines, it was before I had come out, before I had come out as a trans man and uh, all of those things that come with it. So getting to the submarine over a year later, uh, trying to navigate not only being a female on a submarine, but now being one of the only openly gay females on a submarine and navigating that aspect of it and being scared to come out. Um, and part of that reason was before we even got there, one of my fellow um, female officers who was not gay was accused of being gay and was investigated before we even got to the submarine um, by somebody on the submarine that knew that she was coming. 
So that following spring, after we had been there, we were going to D.C. to meet with the president because God knows every time the Navy or the, the military does something, the first people have to go meet the president. Right. So they bring us out, they take us and we're all going to meet the president. And right before we leave for that trip, I talked to my CO and I was like, I have every intention of being an openly gay female at all of these interviews. And he's like, hey, you do you. I will support you however you want to do. And um, he goes, you're a good supply officer. That's all I have. That's that's all I can say about you. And, um, so when I went to DC, I'm the only one, I'm, I'm the senior person there and, um, sitting in the center of everything. And we called the stars and stripes article called me the triple trifecta as being female, gay, and at the time a smoker, because in 2011, they added gays, they added females, and they took away all of their smoking. So it was, you know, a triple stressor for a lot of those old crusty guys <laughs> on things. But being able to be open and honest was honestly the, the biggest thing that was there. Um, but actually, that, that was only a portion of my being able to come out. Um, several years after that, um, in 2013, I started hormones and came, I, I wasn't able to come out. Uh, so it was done in secret as a, as a trans man and my leadership took a, a different turn, um, in the sense that while I was still hiding myself, I still, I was still 10 times more confident in moving forward with something that I knew was going to quote unquote, I mean, really save my own life, save my career and move forward with what I knew I needed to do as far as transitioning was concerned. And this is, this is 2013. We're still kicking folks out for coming out as trans. Um, we may not be kicking out everyone out because they're gay anymore, but we're definitely still kicking people out for being trans and I'm on a ballistic missile submarine. So starting hormones was a calculated risk in the sense of my medication to make sure that it wasn't affecting anything that I was doing. Um, but the confidence grew, my abilities on the ship grew, my leadership in the wardroom grew, and I took a, 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 a round turn on suddenly becoming a leader on the waterfront um, in taking new supply officers under my wing and you know, it may be a combination of things in the sense that the Navy forgot me out there. And so I had been there for a long time <laughs> and I knew what I was doing. And also the, the added confidence of coming out, um, there, uh, and that takes it a whole new level in coming to DC right after that. Um, I came to DC in 2015, um, again, before policy change, we weren't even talking about policy change and um being a leader and since i was at the pentagon it afforded me a great opportunity to be a voice to senior leaders um because i had established my reputation as not only a good supply officer but an award-winning supply officer selected for promotion all of these things um being out and open about all of those things allowed me to be seen as 
a voice for change with senior leaders that in all honesty, I shouldn't have had access to. But because I was there and because I was out and because I had the, um, the intestinal fortitude to be open about it, um, it put me in positions that allowed me to, to bring other people's stories to the forefront as well as my own. And it put me in a position of privilege, really. Uh, I, was, I was a white, you know, male passing officer in the Pentagon, um, which, which gave me a lot of opportunity to be able to not be intimidating to those who might be intimidated by other people showing up and telling them the exact same story. I, I exude comfort, as they say. I make people relax. Thank you so much for, for walking us through those experiences. I'd like to, for a moment, go back to the period of time on the submarine where you're, you're going through the experiences of not being able to be completely out, the taking the risk with the medication. Um, and yet still, despite the struggle of that and despite the risk, having the experiences where your leadership was growing and you were having all of these positive impacts as a leader. I'd like to hear a little bit more about what you think it was that resulted in that confidence, even amidst some of the, the challenge and struggle of that same period. So I can't remember who said it off the top of my head. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois of takes courage to grow up and be exactly who you are. And it took, it takes a bit, I think it takes a bit of a lot more courage than you think you have to take the step out and take a risk that is going to potentially um, ruin your career uh, to become who you need to be. And when you add that courage to the courage it already takes to be on a submarine, to be an officer, to be you know, the first in that position and um, doing all the things that you need to do, you are adding a, 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 an extra layer of um, internal protection to yourself to be able to take those steps and step into um, the higher leadership positions and to really show, hey, I really do know what I'm doing. And I really do think that we need to do it this way. And when you exude that confidence, especially uh, in those pos those positions, people listen. And uh, it doesn't matter. And especially on the submarine, the submarine doesn't care necessarily that you're female, that you're gay, that you're trans or whatever. Um, they will continually say that um, it's, it's partially true. They really just care that you are able to do the job, um, you know. I would say 95% of submariners really just care that you're able to do the job, that you're able to fight fires, that you're able to drive the, drive the boat, that you're able to find the contacts, that you're able to do the things that you need to be able to do and everything else. Gaining that experience um, adds to your credibility in being able to set yourself up to lead in those positions. Um, and really just being able to take charge. You've, you've suddenly found a level of courage that you didn't know you had in, in taking those risks. And that level of courage adds to your ability to step into better leadership positions as you move through, even, even without um, 
being able to be fully who you are, being fully who you are only adds another layer and gives you another step up because it's one less thing you have to worry about. So Blake, if I could, you took this big risk despite knowing the consequence might have been loss of career uh, and everything you had worked so hard for to be part of in the Navy. What was it about you that led you to be able to take that risk despite knowing what the consequence was? Was there something in your journey that developed that you know, ability to look at the risk and say, this is worth it for me? What's interesting is, is, is honestly the thing that got me over the hump of deciding that this was worth the risk was um, the fact that I could keep it fully to myself. So one of the things that was keeping me from it, and this is, this is really what it was, um, what I found out was that hormones didn't need to be refrigerated. When hormones didn't need to be refrigerated, that meant that I had one less risk that I had to be able to take in order to be able to, to take that step. I mean, granted, I own the refrigerators on board the submarine, but I can't go in there once once a week and be like, hey, I got to get this little thing out of this box that belongs to me, right? Um, but to be able to keep it in my room, uh, and it and as I've said before, it's a, it's a calculated risk. And sometimes, I guess, in my mind, that was what it was. It was, it was deciding that there was a level of um, chance that I could be discovered. And um, there w- with that one less thing, the, the chances suddenly went to nil. Um, or not nil. They just became lessened and, uh, and moved forward. So what did you see, though, on the other side of taking that risk that made it worth taking? It didn't go there. I didn't, I didn't think about what would actually happen if they caught me. I just knew that it would be bad and uh, that I would, I was like, you know, all of the things that could possibly have happened, I was worried about uh, the embarrassment to my family. Um, being a first, I was worried about the embarrassment to the Navy. Um, because they took uh, they took great confidence in me to put me on that submarine, um, which, by the way, one of my girls is now the new first XO on board a submarine. So I was super excited to hear that recently. Um, she was mine. She was my first one. And uh, but there were a lot of things to be worried about. But the one thing that I that I was constantly not thinking about was what happens after that. Um, there was a chance that I need that was I needed to take that risk for me and save my own life and uh, do what needed to happen. Um, but honestly, taking that step was was a was a profile in courage in doing so because that led to literally every leadership position I've had sent almost afterwards uh, in in the LGBTQ community. Um, because I decided to, to take that step. I don't know what I was thinking about what happens if I don't, because honestly, I, I couldn't go there. Because if I did, then it would I probably would not have uh, taken the step. Blake, I'm curious about that mental capacity to have the awareness of where you can't go and have that 
conscientiousness around your own thinking, sort of some self-management that you're engaging in around what you what you can and can't dwell on or, or overanalyze. Um, and I'm wondering how you found that skill applicable in your leadership. Um, I think compartmentalization, as much as we say, you know, there can't be any, I think that that has to be at least some of it. Um, I, I know for my time on the submarine, my, my entire career was compartmentalized between being on the submarine and not being on the submarine. Um, because that was, that was how it had to be. I mean, when I was not at work, I had a, I had a church community that referred to me as Blake. My friends referred to me as Blake. Everything, everything about what I was doing when I was not at work was socialized as myself. Um, everything else on the submarine and when I was deployed was socialized as um, something different. Now, granted, it made it a little bit easier in the sense that I was called not by my birth name on the submarine. I was called by my title, which on a submarine was chop because uh, my little uh, collar device looks like a pork chop. So they just, I was called chop. I wasn't called by my first name. I wasn't called, I was very seldom was I called by my last name. Um, so um, I was able to compartmentalize those and do what needed to be done on both ends. Um, and I think sometimes that you have to, in order to make sure that you are doing the self-care needed to be able to do what you do, especially in the military. Um, because what you do is not exactly, um, we, as we say, it's, it's, it's not, it's dangerous, but not unsafe, right? Over here, this was safe. This was our safe space. And this is not my safe space. Uh, it's, it's dangerous, but it's not unsafe. And so you have to, you have to kind of do that. I don't know how you gain that mental capacity. I think it comes with years of having to spend a lot of time compartmentalized, having joined before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, having realized that Don't Ask, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell is not going to apply to you as a trans person. Um, and all of these things, you've just learned to, to, that you know that there are certain expectations and you start to meet those. And then you realize, hey, I actually do know what I'm doing. And you take a step, you take a step up and do what needs to be done. Yeah. In terms of those realizations you had about yourself along the way, you mentioned earlier realizing that you had more courage than you thought that you did. What is it that's important about those things and how did that help you as a um, leader? I am not one that likes the spotlight. Um, but uh, in the midst of everything, when you learn to take those steps, you learn that you there are just certain things that you have to do. And um, when you're in a, especially when you're in a position of power, which as an officer and as a, as a senior officer at that, um, you aren't necessarily, your, your choices are less, or at least there's more to it. And you really owe it to the community to take that step out and realize that, hey, this may be the scariest thing I'm ever going to do. <laughs> But you've got to, you've really got to take, know that you as the LGBT leader, know that you are going to do that with an entire community cheering you on. You just may not see it. And you're doing it in a sense that everyone um, 
behind you will benefit from whatever it is that you are doing and succeeding at. And being that leader, you are being that leader not only for yourself, not only for your service, but for everyone that's going to come behind you because you are setting the tone for that leadership aspect because of the the tropes and everything else that goes along with being LGBT. Every success that you have destroys someone else's trope that they're holding on to or their prejudice because you are not you are exceeding or or doing something a little bit better than what they expected. You're exceeding their expectations and honestly their expectations aren't exactly very high sometimes, but um, as an LGBT leader, but you are setting the tone and making it easier and raising the expectations of those that come behind you. So Blake, you touched on two things that I think lead into my next question. One, as you just mentioned, about setting the conditions for the people that follow you uh, to do even greater things. And the other being that you don't like the spotlight. Now the spotlight has shown pretty brightly on you for the past five or six years. And if I recall, there was a picture of you on the news in 2016 with the biggest smile on your face. And I see it on your face right now as just as you're thinking about it. How did that moment come about where you were in the spotlight setting those conditions for others to follow? I joined an organization called Sparta and um, the leader of the organization at the time uh, Sue Fulton um, had several contacts throughout both the Pentagon and the media and everything else. So in 2016, um, as we were moving forward and and changing policy for trans people, as I already stated, I was I was put in a position where, as someone who was in the Pentagon on a, on a con- station there and as a senior leader, um, it put me in a, a position to talk to senior leaders and to help change their minds. And, um, I hadn't, I had done a little bit of media (laughs) at this point. I had not done a, I had not done a ton. I certainly hadn't done, uh, you know, uh, the shows that I was about to get put on. And here I was, uh, policies changing and they need somebody to step into these positions. And I, I'm there, right? I am there. And when you are given that opportunity. You don't say no, um, because people are look. People know you at this point. They know who you are. Sparta knew who I was. I was a voice of reason. I was a calming uh, presence. I was um, one that was going to give it to you straight, not not beat around the bush, but at the same time, you know, not just necessarily destroy or raise any hopes beyond belief. And so. Those folks were looking to me and there I was. And so they put me in front. And the only thing I kept getting told was, remember to smile, remember to smile, make sure you put on a big smile. And so I literally was practicing smiling in the green room. And so when I got put in front of the chair, all I did was had this the whole time. Like I literally, it was like, I couldn't unplaster it because if I unplastered it, it wouldn't have, it would have gone away. I mean, granted I was having that feeling, but I'm just not the smiley person. Right. So, um, that's what I had to do. And, um, from that moment on, I became kind of a face of a movement that, uh, 
I didn't realize I was going to become that big of a face at that big of a, at that at that time. I thought I would be able to sneak back into the background, work policy, do some other things, and then of course, you know, things changed in 2017, and next thing I know, I'm I'm definitely uh, on every newspaper from here to Moscow. <laughs> Well, as someone who has also served as president of Sparta, like you did, I want to thank you for setting those conditions that created such an amazing environment for us to step into. But can you talk a little bit more about the organization and its mission uh, to support transgender troops on their developmental journeys? Absolutely. So um, we take our time. We have... um, Nowadays, I think we're up to up to almost two thousand members. That's right. Um, and um, we started several years ago as as a as a safe space for trans people to discuss what they were doing to help themselves be themselves uh, in spite of what the policy was, and and also to work towards policy change. And eventually we transitioned, once policy changed, we transitioned to an advocacy and education organization that advocated and educated our senior leaders and our industry partners on what they can do to make life better for trans service members. But we also do that a bit internally in raising up, finding our our leaders as as they stand out and, and bringing them into the fold and putting them to leadership positions and holding them accountable and expecting them to mentor their charges as, as chapter leaders and, um, and mentors to, to bring together and, and continue to raise the next generation of leaders. So we've, we've done that for the last several years and um, it's been a great success. We've raised several really awesome, awesome folks and put them in, in positions of visible leadership and, and made them, I think, better than what they would have thought for themselves, especially some of our younger ones um, with, um, with some of our young Marines and, and our junior, junior Navy officers, um, especially bringing them to the forefront and showing them that, uh, yes, I know that you think that you can't do this, but you are doing it already. And uh, I just need you to acknowledge that you are there and and realize that you're leading troops uh, even if you're not necessarily think that you are blake i'm really struck by this theme in your own experience and and the others that you've worked with um of, of coming to realize yourself in a new place coming to realize new things about yourself having the self-awareness that perhaps you can accomplish more than you thought um and I'm wondering what kind of lessons your transition experience taught you about really examining your own identity and, and developing that self-awareness and maybe thinking differently about what it is that you are capable of or where it is that you might um, be going. I think because uh, we as uh, LGBT folk or trans people in general, um, there is a lot of inward focus for a long time before we come to terms with, with who we are and what we're doing. And that makes our self-awareness button a little bit bigger. Uh, I think that we have a tendency to be more self-aware, self-aware on uh, the words that we say and how we affect people, um, the the encouragements that we offer, 
and and knowing and knowing where and how to talk to people uh, because those types of things are things that we pay attention to um, because we've paid attention to how and where people talk to us and how it makes us feel and so um, that self-awareness is something that I think is is integral in developing leadership skills because lack of self-awareness um, can be a detriment to your ability to um, self-evaluate and know what your leaders are already thinking about your performance or having that idea of what may be there. And so bring, bring that into, into, into account, um, that has allowed, that allows us to, to really bring to the forefront, what we can work on, what we're good at and where we may need to improve and bring those, bring that together, um, helps us have those conversations with our mentors, honestly, and our, our mentors don't need to like bring it out of us as, as they say, right. Uh, there's no digging, there's no looking, you know, there's no like really making you have that self-awareness while in the mentoring meeting. Um, it's already there and you are bringing it to the forefront. And I think that that's a, that's a big plus on our end. And I think it, it probably makes us a little bit more, uh, easy to not necessarily easy, but, uh, less difficult to, to have that mentoring relationship. What can a mentor or any leader do to really leverage that reality and, and not squash the potential for a great development in the folks um, that they're working with? I think with? having the discussions of understand, you know, knowing what to pay attention to, knowing, paying attention to how you speak to people and how people speak to you. How people speak to you can be an indication of okay, well, that makes me feel that way. So maybe that's something that I should pay attention to and how I speak to others. Um, my drill instructor used to always talk to us about having two different sea bags. Uh, one's, the, one's the sea bag of all the leaders and everybody that you want to talk to and that you want to keep and their aspects of it. And you want to keep that in your keep sea bag. And then you've got a second sea bag where those are all the people that you don't want to emulate. You don't want to do what they do. You don't want to, you know, Take those lessons learned from those folks that you've you've seen do horrible things or speak horribly to people, um, and you got to empty that one out every every couple of months because uh, it fills up fast. <laughs> the the good ones uh, have a tendency to be few and far between, and the bad ones have a tendency to. I mean, they just make a bigger impression. Hmm. What's some of the um best leadership that you've seen modeled during this yeah, journey. What's in your you. keep bag? My keep bag? My keep bag is to let let sailors be sailors. Let let them be themselves. Right? There are things that matter and there are things that don't matter. Right? The fact that um, am I good at the job? That matters. Do I understand what I'm supposed to be doing? That matters. Is my um, am I the right gender? Am I going to, to am I going to the doctor on a regular basis? Am I doing all these other things? Those matter less in the sense of um, that's not keeping me from doing my job, right? So those are you know the the what we consider standards and what we consider like important things may or may not be the same. 
Um, so let them just be themselves. Let, you know, give some flexibility. Um, don't make it a thing. Don't make transition a thing that we talk about. Um, and we can, we can dive into this in a minute because right now where I'm at, I'm not out. I'm not out at Fleet Readiness Center, but I'm not hiding. My, my, my command knows, the CO knows, the XO knows, um, my boss, I think, knows. But generally, it's not something I'm not, I'm not out. It's not something that I talk about. And, um, but just, and it's just letting me be. And uh, through my transition or through any of those things, we just let me handle business on my own. Right. It, it wasn't part of something we discussed unless I felt we needed to discuss it. Um, that was my big thing was they just let me be me. Um, they would uh, the. Um, we focused on my ability to do the job. We focused on my ability to be a leader. We focused on my ability to to manage tasks and personnel. We didn't, we didn't, we don't talk about other things unless I need, unless I need their assistance. So Blake, do you see that as a privilege that you have to be able to operate in a space like that? And how might it be different for other LGBTQ folks who are either having to constantly come out because they're talking about their spouse using pronouns that people don't expect, or for trans people who don't have uh, the ability to pass all that well. It may have features or something that says, uh, I figured you out before you even open your mouth uh, to others. What does that mean for you and for others to be in different spaces in the LGBTQ community? So, um, and that is that is the other thing. So I carry a lot of privilege. I'm a senior officer, right? I'm an 05. No one's going to question what I necessarily do or don't do. Um, I am white. I'm, I have passing male privilege. Um, no one's going to peg me in a room on whether or not they know that I'm a trans person. Um, so I have a lot of privilege in that, in that regard. Uh, now granted I'm getting, I've been getting involved. I'm, I'm starting to get involved in our, our local LGBT employee resource group and trying to, to be involved there. Um, I have discussed, um, that I recently had um, a partner for a little while who was male. And again, it wasn't necessarily discussed, but it wasn't hidden. Uh, I did discuss my, my friend in, in male terms uh, and who I was, you know, seeing at the time. Um, and it's not going to be the same everywhere. I, I realize that I have been privileged in 17 years of my Navy career to never have encountered a toxic leader or to have had to deal with toxic people in the sense that they have made my life a living hell. Um, other people deal with that much, much more. And that comes again with me being in niche areas of the military and um, having good leaders who allowed me to be in leadership in Sparta. I could tell you how many folks they got pushback for doing things for Sparta uh, on their uh, either whether it was talking to the media or talking to other service members or doing whatever they would get pushback. Mine never did. Um, my leadership never pushed back on my on my abilities to talk to the press. 
um, or anything like that. And I've been in constantly in positions uh, where that was allowed. Um, but that has also allowed me to uh, be, because of that, I was allowed to be put in positions that allowed me to change hearts and minds at higher ups. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of places where if I had said, I'm going to go have a meeting with the Secretary of Defense, that my commander might have had a coronary, right? So I happened being happened to be, you know, in those positions that didn't happen. So having those, having acknowledging that that is what I have to deal with now uh, and what other people have to deal with is, is totally different. And I, which is why I'm constantly trying to push other stories to the forefront because my story is totally different. And uh, while I've done a lot of really awesome things and done a lot of great things for the community, my story is much less fraught with pushback and discrimination and um, mean, you know, I've gotten exactly one, one death threat, whereas other folks have gotten, you know, hundreds over the course of our over the course of our service because of the visibility that they've afforded themselves. Blake, even so, most people are walking around in the world never having gotten a death threat. And so I'm curious, to the extent that you have experienced adversity, um, what have you learned or how have you grown as a result of moving through those challenging circumstances? Um, one thing that I've, I've really come to terms with is the fact that while social media does great for change, it's fake. Like generally, most of the people who are going to send me those kinds of nasty things um, will never interact with me in a public setting. They will never see me. They'll never talk to me. Um, and again, that's privilege on my end because I'm a white passing male person who lives in an affluent neighborhood, right? Um, but generally, what I've what I've told myself and and how I've how I've overcome that is never read the comments <laughs> and. Uh, as, uh, as I wag my finger, never read the comments. Because <laughs> um, most of those people, they are mean and they're horrible and they're just awful people. And they're also, 80% um, of them are, are fake. And the other 20% probably don't have the guts to sit, tell you that in person. Um, and take a lot of self-care. And when you need to take a break, take a break. Um, I did about two years ago. Uh, I took a break. And I've kind of stepped back and I'm, I'm slowly starting to insert myself in more local things uh, as, I, as I move forward uh, in my career. Blake, I believe there was someone in your life that may have taught you about not reading the comments, but I know there are a lot of leaders that have inspired you. What are some of the best leaders that you've seen and how they interacted with you? And what did you take away from those lessons and from those interactions? The best leader I've ever had for me personally um, is Sue Fulton. She's currently a secretary at the at, in the VA, one of the undersecretaries there. Um, she taught me how to do an interview. She taught me how to manage uh, expectations. Uh, she taught me how to lead lead the troops on a on a regular basis, as far as being as transparent as I could be, um, but not so transparent that I had them in panic. Um, uh, she taught me how to, um, pivot during a, an intense discussion 
Uh, and these are all things that are, are very tactical, but they're very practical in that matter because they're not just applicable in my fight for LGBT equality. They're, they're applicable during intense discussions over aircraft production, which is what I have now, <laughs> right? So um, those are the types of things that I found. Uh, and, and also like once I decide something to really like move forward in that, in that regard um, and not being afraid to push back on, on senior leaders on when they're, they're doing things that don't make sense. Uh, I do it now. I do it on a regular basis. And it's probably the biggest thing as the, as I'm breaking new ground again, I'm the very first supply officer at fleet readiness center East um, in 25 years, they've not needed that. And what am I doing? I'm, I'm doing really the integration work between various levels of leaders uh, to make sure that they understand where we can help and where we can't and where I need help, which is all the things that I learned in fighting for LGBT equality um, in making sure that I am integrating and putting the right people and getting answers when I need answers. So I think you're touching on something that we've found from talking with a lot of LGBTQ leaders is about their ability and desire to connect. And to go back to something you said early on, you tend to have this ability to make people relax. What is it about your journey and about you that puts people at ease and allows that form of connection that builds those relationships, that does that integration, that enables things, uh, just as you were talking about, to get the job done? Um, so there are several things that I think um work there. One is my ability to generally stay calm in an intense situation. Um, and I don't know if that's a personality driven thing or if that's a learned thing. But I know that um, there are a lot of people that get they take a lot of things really personally when it comes to how they do the job or how they think service is supposed to go, whether we're talking about trans women in uniform or whether we're talking about um, how a particular hazmat needs to be, you know, reconstituted for an aircraft. Um, they take things so personally because it's, they, they find it there. Um, and so the temperature in the room goes up real fast. And I've always had the ability to bring it right back down to refocus us on what needs to, what needs to, to move forward on that. Um, the other thing is, is my ability to, and this is something I've had since, since college is the ability to talk to whatever audience you put me in front of, um, the ability to understand, um, why someone is uncomfortable before I walk into a room, um, or why someone is upset or what need, what they need to know or how they need to be spoken to in order to make them listen to what I have to say. Um, so whether it's a, a group over 60 or whether it's a, a room full of kindergartners, right? Um, I've always had that ability and uh, that's something that I take with me on a regular basis. And it really does help uh, to know who it is that you're talking to and what type of words and phrases they're going to listen to. I think that that, that, is, that, is, a, that is a learned skill that most people don't have. Like you took a little bit of an unusual path to the position 
that you're in and some of these leadership roles. And you mentioned college. Now, you came from a, uh, a community of faith and, in fact, even studied with the, the intention, I believe, to maybe be a minister at one point. How did that journey uh, get you to where you are now and how did it influence your leadership style and even your current beliefs uh, in relationship to the world, LGBTQ people in general, uh, and how you view them? Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, so I think part of that skill that I just talked about and being able to talk to whatever audience I was, I was presented, that's a, that's a Bible preacher skill, right? That is, that is something I learned in Bible college um, to be able to to teach or to preach in in whatever uh, audience I was I was given, um, and honestly, because of that, uh, I now use that same skill set as a DE and I speaker and and talking to talking to people and and using that level of confidence that I learned um, when I stand in front of anyone uh, to to present whatever message that I, that I have, obviously, um, I come from Bible college. I have a bachelor's of biblical literature. Um, so I've done all of the, the arguing and the, and the studying and the hard chair and the soft chair of, of faith and community. And I think, um, finding that I, that I didn't fit into any of the communities very well, um, just has, you know, made me to, to be, you know, a good leader in all of those aspects, um, or at least a, someone who's constantly questioning everything that we're doing, um, and knowing that there are there are certain people that need to be um, certain groups of people that you need to be able to move a forward uh, a movement forward. You need the loud and the proud and the people to bring attention to it, and you need the folks like me and Bree who are more like calm and composed and common sense who are willing to sit down at the table and have a conversation to really be able to talk out, uh, you know, what are people's concerns? What are their issues? What are their, you know, and, and come to a level of understanding um, to, to bring about what, what needs to happen. And it may be slow, but it's generally successful. That skill set to be able to take on others' perspectives, figure out what's going to connect with them, what kind of language to use and so on. How did your transition experience alter or augment that skill or, or did it evolve in any way throughout that process? Um, I just got really good at making sure I understood all the all the various viewpoints. Um, and then I don't like conflict. So when you don't like conflict, <laughs> you learn to kind of uh, try and keep the level in the room at a, at a certain temperature. So I, it, it's a combination of a leadership skill slash defense mechanism um, that allows me to be able to do that. I don't know if it changed or if it's been the same over my transition. Um, I've always, like I said, I've always been able to do that uh, as I've moved from um, heavy in the church to, to, I mean, goodness, oh goodness. I was like, take a, the, the same level of knowledge of a person that was probably 15 and most people that never, never went to church. That was me when I joined the military at 25. Right. So, um, uh, joining the military and, and suddenly coming out of that, that very cloistered area 
to suddenly being on on the stage of the world and testifying to Congress and to attending the State of the Union. Um, I don't know how that would have gotten there um, if I hadn't just said, you know, if not who, you know, if not now, when, right? So, and if not, if not me, who else? <laughs> so uh, I've kind of taken that on as a, as a personal personal thing. And I, and I did that for several years until I, until I decided to take a step back and let others, others move into. And I think that's another skill that a lot of folks don't have is, is knowing when it's time for you to let others take on the next level of the fight. Having taken that step back and, and having observed where things have gone in recent years, what are your hopes? What do you hope to see in the future? Um, I hope to see just the, you know, less of a need for us, right? As far as um, not necessarily advocates, because there's always going to be the people who are who are kind of un, uninformed, but less intense, be more local, less national, um, to, to see that happen and um, for it to just be an everyday thing. Uh, we're not there yet. We won't be there for sev- probably several decades because uh, we're still we're still battling my old, my old community of, of the church on whether or not we even deserve to exist right now. So um, I would like us to move in that direction, just like they say uh, with a lot of the firsts, you know, let's move beyond the firsts. Yep. We're there, but we're still going to have firsts and uh, um, knowing, and people just need to know that people just need to realize, yeah, there's still going to be a lot of things that, and you're like, well, they're allowed now. I go, yeah, but you know, up until a few years ago, we weren't. So you're going to continue to see a lot of firsts. I know you don't think that those matter, but they do. So Blake, we're recording this less than a week after uh, the attack on our community at, at Club Q. And we still see a lot of that hate in the world that may drive violence against LGBTQ people. How do leaders help shape the culture that moves us away from that era of fear and stigmatization? What can we do to move things forward? So not only do we get away from violent attacks, but also from the discrimination and stigmatization that so many LGBTQ people face, particularly early in their career when they don't have the background that say someone like you has. Well, exactly. Um, And actually, Charlotte Clymer, uh, wrote the perfect blog for that today, and it's what we aren't doing. And it is um, every time someone lends against some weird accusation or some unfounded accusation uh, or prediction of what it's going to be like to to allow LGBTQ people to exist in public, they've been wrong every single time. Every all the all the predictions about what would happen if we allowed gay marriage, if we allowed gays in the military, if we allowed trans people in the military, um, whether we you know or any other um, minority, every prediction made by the church has been wrong. The world is still moving. The country is still here. Nothing has happened. They've been wrong. And guess what? We still allow them to make it. We still give it credence, and we still allow people to debate us on national television. And none of the media, or even our politicians in general, honestly, have have 
called it out as you have been wrong. It's false. It's made up. We aren't doing that forcefully enough, and we continue to allow them to have a stage where those things are viewed as true. And the only way that we are going to win this day in regards to stemming some of at least the majority of the violence is for them to is for us to start telling people that they've been wrong that they're lying that they're making it up that they can't find but you know these cases that exist uh that one case does not make a make or break a an entire thing i'm like well, then your argument for marriage is wrong since, you know, 60% of marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. I don't understand what you're making an argument against. So it's it's really taking the time to and, and forcing our politicians and our media to pull a Jon Stewart and say, yeah, that was bullshit and you know it. You have this ability to bring the temperature down in the room, but it's also real obvious when you get passionate. And I think we just found a very passionate topic for you. Is it a conscious decision that you make as a leader, whether to bring the fire, bring the passion, or to bring it down? Or is that something that just comes out of you? Uh, is that in control or just reacting to the situation? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, it depends on the situation, right? I know when I can be passionate. And I know when I kind of have to... I have to maintain my my ability to remain calm, right? You don't want to be baited into being that passionate because the moment you're baited into being passionate about something like that, then as you know, as anyone else, now you're now. I, of course, this is this is the 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 female raising of me is that you're called emotional or you're unstable or you're making a plea that doesn't you know now look at now now I'm the persecuted one right so you've got to be real conscious about the situation and who you're talking to and what they can accuse you of when you get that passionate um but in places where you are you are the speaker you're not having that conversation i think that passionate is is that passion is is well founded and should be presented but um, you don't want to, you don't want to put, if you put the other person in, in a situation where you're discussing it, where you put them on the defensive, then, uh, in a, in a way that they can construe it as now they are fearful, um, then, then you've kind of lost the room. So you have to be real conscious about how you do that. And that's, that's typically, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent there. I have had my situations. <laughs> um, it is something that you kind of have to be, you have to be really conscious and in control of. You talked a bit about uh, the need to move past a point where this work is necessary, particularly on a, on a national or global level, and, and get to a point where we have the opportunity to act locally. What is it that people outside the LGBTQ community can do to act locally on a regular basis to help advance our causes? Um, generally, my, my big things are... Um... If you're in a conversation with someone and they make a remark that's inappropriate, you as a you as not an LGBT person needs to call it out and to to tell them that that's not appropriate conversation. Just as we just as anyone would these days with an N word or 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 a, a slur of another kind based on racial stereotypes, we should do the same thing for LGBT stereotypes. Um, donate to local organizations. Yes, Human Rights Campaign does great things, but guess what? 
So does your local LGBTQ center who probably needs your funding more than HRC does um, for resources and, and room space and, and volunteers to, for um, just printing just general things or gathering clothes, um, those things, make sure you donate to those local organizations um, and, and volunteer at those local organizations as a, as an ally. One thing that, that, you know, LGBT kids don't ever see is, is, is straight allies that are willing to, to come and volunteer with them, right? Who have no, who have no interest other than their ability to help you succeed. Blake, is there some area of LGBTQ leadership you think is underexplored, undervalued, or just not thought of? In your mind, what's maybe unique about LGBTQ leadership or the way it develops that is different from everyone else or perhaps just more prevalent in the LGBTQ community? Um. I think our leadership is forged in fear a lot of times, right? Um, we grow up so often, we grow up so afraid of losing everything constantly. Um, whether it's because you grew up in the church, uh, especially if you grew up in the church, um, you, you, you live in this idea that, okay, I know I'm this way, but if I come out, um, everything's going to go away. I lose my family. I lose my community. Um, I don't know anyone else like me, all of these things. I think that that, um, that level of, um, fear and mort mortality, like, especially in the church, if you grew up religious, it is so like, there's a level of mortality that you take into your, into consideration when you come out as gay, because, you haven't you haven't deconstructed that faith enough to know that when you come out as a gay person or a trans person in a community of faith, you have you have condemned yourself to hell, and you've decided you're okay with that. I mean that is that is the level that you are you are dealing with, and I think that that is a unique thing when it comes to leadership development. Is not only are you learning to do that, then you've you've made that decision. You're coming out. And I have made the, the conscious decision to condemn my own self to hell. I'm okay with that. And I'm going to rise up out of it. Uh, so that's beautiful in that I will stand in this spot, despite what others think of me. I, I think that's an, an amazing thing that a lot of LGBTQ leaders uh, develop. So I think we have time for one more question with you, Blake, and we'll throw that over to Liz for the last one. Blake, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story with us um, and also sharing with us so many ideas about what we can be thinking about, what we can be doing differently. And so with that, I'd just like to ask you about your participation, your, I'm sorry, your participation in this project um, and your willingness to help us out. What is it that you'd like to see out of this? What is it that we can do to be successful with this effort? Um, what would um, make you happy? I want more leaders who aren't LGBTQ to know what's going on here, right? I Like um, the story I submitted um, with regards to LGBT leadership had everything to do with the leaders that were around me who were not LGBT, who took the time to mentor me and to provide a layer of of top cover, um, so to speak, in regards to allowing me to 
to sprout wings um, in the community and, and be that voice for change. Um, and they did. They just let me. I don't, I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> um, but I, that's my big thing is what I would see is, is, is just, um, you know, helping people realize where their strengths lie and then just letting them, letting them fly. Blake, those are great words to wrap up on. Uh, we're so glad you joined us here on Forge and Fire as we try and create that environment where people do get to go flying. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Forged and Fire is hosted by Brie Fram and Liz Cavallero. Produced and engineered by Frida Castellanos and Christina George. Guest management by Trey Wirth and original music by Bridget Benemark. The views and ideas expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the organizations or institutions they represent. To learn more about Forged and Fire, please visit us at forgedandfire.org. Thank you.